You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Some people trade equities. Some people trade commodities, while others they trade currencies. The number of financial instruments you could trade are virtually limitless. But what you may not realize is that everyone trades volatility. Yet so few understand what it means and why it matters. This week, we speak with Steve Diggle, founder of Volpus Investment Management, whose fund made over three billion dollars when everyone else was losing everything. Because he understood volatility and how to wield it. Essentially, what happened was a total and complete change in perception of risk from non-existent to ubiquitous and, and, and permanent. And that was caused by the fact that when prices started to fall, you had forced sellers. But volatility is not just restricted to financial markets. We also speak with a current volatility hedge fund manager whose understanding of volatility runs deeper. Than the flashing lights on your Bloomberg terminal. Chris Cole, co-founder of Artemis Capital Management, explains how volatility is a fundamental expression of nature and our lives. I see volatility as an instrument of truth, and in that sense, it's it's not fear. It's it's not the VIX index. It's not a statistic or something that can be derived by an abstract formula. Volatility. Regardless of how it's measured, reflects the difference between the world as we imagine it to be and the world that actually exists. And if you understand volatility, you can completely change how you view financial markets and the world around you. This week on Adventures in Finance, volatility. Also, as usual, coming up in this week's episode, we have our long short segment where Aaron and I discuss the good and, of course, the not so good stories of the week. Well, my long this week is failing your way to success. And on June 8th, the Yahoo shareholders will be voting on whether to sell the company's internet business to Verizon for four and a half billion dollars. Now, my short is, I'm afraid, once again, Ben Bernanke, who is back in the public eye. Now he's three years out of office. Apparently, he's allowed to. Uh, Share the wisdom of uh, his accumulated years during the Federal Reserve with us. And in a favorite segment of ours called Things I Got Wrong, we speak with a seasoned market expert about an investing hiccup or mistake they made, and we ask them to share a pearl of investing wisdom with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. Yeah, this week we've got Chris Martinson joining us. Uh, many of you will know Chris Martinson as the co-founder of PeakProsperity.com. He's also the co-author of Prosper, How to Prepare for the Future and Create a World Worth Inheriting. And Chris, as always in this segment, tells us about a mistake you made. I'm Grant Williams. I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is April 27th, 2017, and welcome to episode 13 of Adventures in Finance. Lucky number 13. Guys, what do you think about that? I'm not superstitious at all. No, you're not? Grant, what about you? Uh, No, I, 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 I feel we should record the entire podcast from underneath a ladder just to prove that to everybody. <laughs> well, it is pretty lucky because we've had you in the office now 
for two weeks in a row. So Careful now, fellas. You are tempting fate. You are definitely tempting fate. I will be on the road again shortly. So Grant, how does it, how does it feel to be in one place for an extended period of time? Because I know that's pretty rare for you. Well, it feels kind of weird, to be honest. It feels kind of weird. But look, if I'm going to be in one place uh, for an extended period of time, it may as well be the Caribbean uh, when the weather's good. So listen, there's, you're not hearing any complaints from me. Well, Grant, at your age, you should enjoy being in the nice warm weather here. Sorry, who are you? <laughs> at my age, it's easy to forget people. Well, you know, you, you, how close are you to retirement? Not easy enough. Maybe I ought to try harder. You can, you can tell how happy James is to have you back in the office. Yeah, right. Exactly right. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I get all the free butterscotch um, sweets I, I could eat. Is that, is that a Werther's original joke you've just thrown in there? It's, it's a Werther's original. You do realize that most people in the world will have no clue what you're talking about, and the rest of them won't care. And I have no idea what you guys are talking about, which is why we are going to move on to our next segment, which is Long Short. Yeah, nice save. Nice save, Aaron. Well, first up, yes, Long Short segment. And this is uh, the feature where Aaron and I go through the good and the not-so-good stories that we can pick ourselves a long and a short. And, um, you know, uh, James talking about my age, probably you should defer to my advancing years, Aaron, but I'm going to let you go first with your <laughs> long this week. Well, my long this week is failing your way to success. And on June 8th, the Yahoo shareholders will be voting on whether to sell the company's interest business, um, internet business to Verizon for $4.5 billion. And why I am long failing your way to business, it's, it's not, it, it sounds like the Silicon Valley mantra, but it actually has to do with Miss Mayer. If the Yahoo shareholders vote yes, then her vested stock, stock options, and restricted stock units will be worth a total of $186 million dollars at today's stock, um, Yahoo stock value of around $48.15. And so when I read this, I was just like, there's just, you can't fail. You can fail and stay, still make tons of money. Um, it, it well, just... you, you can as long as, you're, as long as you're the CEO of a company that gets bought out. I mean, there are plenty of high-profile failures that didn't uh, get lucky enough to have someone like Verizon desperately trying to uh, increase market share and, and make an acquisition like this. But you, you know what I found funny, uh, Grant, is that in this article it said most of Miss Mayer's payout is based on a 2000, uh, sorry, 208% increase in Yahoo stock price since she left Google for Yahoo in 2012. Now, if I recall, I think QE2 happened in, in 2012, yeah. and it must be kind of nice to have that headwind look, hey, behind look, her. Uh, look, listen, if, if you're on a wave, you just surf it, right? Don't, don't, worry, if, don't worry about where it came from, uh, but at some point it's going to break on the shore. Yeah. If the, if the, Give me one hundred eighty-six million dollars. I'd surf it too. Well, I'm going to. Uh, I'm actually going to do my short first, um, and there's a good reason for that. And I'll tell you about that when I get to my long. Now, my short um, is, I'm afraid, once again, Ben Bernanke, who is uh, is back in the public eye. Now he's three years out of office. Apparently, he's allowed to uh, share the wisdom um, of uh, his accumulated years during at the Federal Reserve with us. And there was a great um, interview in the, in the New York Times this week. And I'm just going to read you a couple of quotes about it. It says, Mr. Bernanke has been thinking recently about the current state of politics and the economy. He recently had to write an afterword for the paperback version of his book, The Courage to Act, which is expected to come out in Great two Great title. Weeks. I know, isn't it just? Uh, and it chronicled his time at the Fed and captured his thinking during the financial crisis. That exercise forced him to try and think through the implications of economic policy in an age of populism. And while wages may be stagnant for many, and some industries are shedding jobs, Mr. Bernanke is convinced that much of the country just hasn't appreciated how good the economy is. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, it goes on. The U.S. has done so much better than most of the rest of the world, he said. I mean, if you have an international perspective and you travel around the world and you hear from policymakers or average people in other countries, boy, the U.S. is doing great. We wish that Europe or Japan could do as well. Now, you know, I mean, 
people talk about ivory towers and academics that just don't get it. You know, to, to, to actually say these things out loud and not realize what you're saying, that you know, it's not the economy, it's you guys. You just don't realize how great the economy is doing. It, it, it's just astounding to me. Right, you just don't know how to model like I do. I mean, the lack of self-awareness is astounding. And also the fact that he has to force himself. I mean, all these political forces are in play and shifting around, um, around him. Yet he has to force himself to reconsider or, or, or consider the policies um, in lieu of, of, of populism. I just think it, it, it's astounding, well, the lack and, of support. And, and here's what he comes up with. You know, this is, this is one of the brightest guys in the world, surprisingly. Here's what he comes up with. You know what? It couldn't possibly be that the result of those policies is a poorly functioning economy. No, it has to be the people that just don't understand how good they've got it. Well, it, it, if he came up with that after three years of not being allowed to speak, I can't wait for what he'll come up with in six years. I can. I can wait six years. I can wait 10 years to hear what he's <laughs> going to say. Anyway, uh, it's your Will you still turn. be around in 10 years? <laughs> well, let, let's see, James. Let's see. I, I, I suspect I might be, but you know what? It's no guarantee at my age. Let's move on. Aaron, what's your, uh, what are you doing? You're long. What's your short for the week? My short for the week is uh, I'm shorting the trend in the number of listed American firms. And there was an article uh, in the Schumpeter blog uh, in The Economist, and it talked about how uh, recently at a dinner uh, held at the New York Stock Exchange, um, the co-founder of Airbnb, his name is, his name is Brian Chesky. And during his speech, well, he was asked, you know, whether he was going to list Airbnb on the New York Stock Exchange, and he said, there's no pressing need. And this actually speaks to a bigger trend in American business where the number of listed companies from 1996 to you know, 2016, so 20 years, has essentially halved from around 7,300 to now around 3,600. And that's, so that's over 20 years. But meanwhile, the value of listed firms has risen from around 105% of GDP to now 136% of GDP. So Grant, I think what this speaks to is sort of this oligopolization of the economy, but also an oligopolization, man, that's a hard word to say twice in a row, uh, of capital, where you, you know, the individual investor now has fewer and fewer options on the S&P 500. I was reading how when you have fewer and fewer firms in the S&P 500, less turnover, it actually it forces institutions like pension funds to invest in murkier private markets. Well, so, it does, but uh, but again, none of this really matters as you move towards an ETF-based economy, right? Because right. no matter how many point. constituents there are in an ETF, it's an ETF that represents the index. So you can halve the number of companies. Yeah, people just want to buy the ETF. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's an ongoing phenomenon that I guarantee you and I are going to be talking a lot more on this podcast in years to come. My, you know, my my short this week was very nearly ETFs because um, they finally jumped the shark this week with the release of an ETF of ETFs. Which, uh, which, right. which blows my mind. But I want to look into that more before we bring that on as a, as a viable short. Right. But now my long this week um, is actually, is actually uh, a short in longs clothing. And I saw a great chart, which uh, my buddy Mike O'Rourke at Jones Trading put out. And it shows the relative performance of a bunch of markets to the US over one month, three months, six months, a year, two years, and five years. So uh, you know, my long is basically everything against the US, and I'll tell you for why. Over a five-year period, this is the underperformance levels of various markets. Italy is underperformed by 33%, Spain 30%, Sweden 30%, UK 45%, Australia 45%, uh, EM in general 45%, uh, Canada 44%, Mexico 50%, and Brazil 65%. So that, that underperformance, that ability now, and a lot of that is dollar strength that we saw back in 2014-15, uh, but the ability at this point to actually go long some of these markets 
versus a short of the US, which really looks like it's sucking wind to me. Um, so that so that's my my short is uh, my my long rather is pretty much everything, and my short versus a short against the US S and P. And just like apps, I think there's an ETF for that. I, there will be, I guarantee. And if there isn't one, uh, you know, we'll get James to knock one up for us over lunchtime. The ETF of everything. All right, sounds good. Well, let's move on next to our documentary feature on volatility. Well, Grant, volatility is our centerpiece, our focus for this week. And it's a word that these days you hear a lot about. It, it, you know, oftentimes it's about how it's too low or often associated with the fear index, the VIX. And I was wondering why, you know, what's there to fear? You know, I looked up the Investopedia definition and volatility is either a measure of dispersion of returns or a variable in options pricing models. Yeah, very helpful. Uh, but what does it actually mean to the average investor? That was, that was my question. And and what's hiding behind the math and financial derivatives jargon? So to get to the bottom of this, we enlisted the help of, of two people that you introduced me to. Yeah, this week we've got two fantastic guests. Um, the first is a dear friend of mine, Steve Diggle of Volpez Investment Management in Singapore, who's a former volatility uh, fund manager who made billions of dollars for his investors uh, with a short credit, long uh, volatility strategy during the uh, global financial crisis. And then uh, a current vol hedge fund manager, Chris Cole of Artemis Capital out in Austin, Texas, who uh, who has an absolutely incredibly original way of looking at this and an even better way of communicating uh, his thoughts to people. So um, I think you're going to get a lot out of this. And, and the, the first person that we spoke with was my dear friend, Steve Diggle. Yeah. And Steve really didn't waste any time in deconstructing the so-called barrier to entry. Look, I mean, I have I have a particular uh, bee in my bonnet over this um, because I don't think, you, you know, you can always talk about, you can always make something complicated. And there are aspects of, of trading options or volatility in general that can be mathematically complicated, but the underlying concepts are not complicated at all. Uh, in fact, everyone intuitively understands them um, because everyone intuitively understands betting which is what this is. Um, so, you know, it, it always, and it always has infuriated me that people uh, within the industry like to make this seem impenetrably complicated because it gives them a feeling of superiority and builds a barrier to entry. Um, you don't need postgraduate qualification in, in mathematics to understand options trading or volatility trading. You know, you really don't. You just need some common sense. And when you when people start, you know, talking in these acronyms and these compli- complicated, um, complex ways about things. I think it's really more just for their own self-aggrandizement than the fact that, or, or, or possibly, you know, they don't understand it. You know, Einstein famously said, you know, uh, anyone who can't talk about something in a simple way doesn't really understand it. The thing that worries me most, Aaron, in, in the markets right now is this just this there's an awful lot of talk about the VIX. It's always referenced on days when um, when the market's weak, but very little talk about what actually the VIX is or what underlies it or what drives the underlying instruments within it. Yeah, see, this is why I love Steve, right? Steve doesn't. Uh, mints his words. He he understands this stuff as well as anybody on the planet, and and he's very happy to to demystify it and talk about how it's not as difficult as people uh, are, are are probably actively led to believe. Yeah, I, I love that too because right off the top, he you know someone someone like Steve makes you feel like you can understand it, and even for myself, like I've experienced a sort of impenetrable jargon that he speaks about. 
Um, I remember being in college and, and looking at the course curriculum and, and picking my courses and and just reading the course description for the options and futures class, I like my eyes glazed <laughs> over. And 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 I'm 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 someone who is quantitatively quantitatively inclined. So, you know, he's I think he's definitely spot on with that, but it's a good place to start. Like you don't need a graduate degree in mathematics to understand volatility or at least understand these concepts. But you know, the thing Steve didn't say, which I think is important, is you you do need the the desire to understand it. Because it's not, you know, it's it's a lot more simple than people will have you believe. But it still requires some mental uh, effort on the part of anybody who really does want to understand it because to half understand it is a very dangerous thing. You need to understand it fully. Yeah, absolutely. And the first step to understanding is to, I guess, to understand, you know, what does volatility even mean? And maybe a better question is to ask what it is not. There's a lot of things that volatility doesn't mean. You know, if you look at virtually every hedge fund newsletter, when they get things wrong and lose money, they blame the volatility in the markets. Volatility isn't when something happens that you didn't expect it to happen. That's just being wrong. Um, I mean, mathematically, volatility is, you know, an annualized, it's represented as a number of an annualized rate of daily change, which mathematically is usually the square root of 252. Um, But what it really means for the investor is the speed with which assets that you are interested in, either because you're long, you're short, or you're looking at, is changing um, in, in front of you. And it's, it's intrinsically connected to liquidity. Um, and in a sense, volatility and liquidity are two sides of the same coin. Volatility is caused by illiquidity or occasionally very unexpected events which cause, which cause great big gaps. And that's a very important distinction when we talk about volatility, whether it's things which are trading constantly but moving a lot or whether they're gapping. And that makes a huge difference to the average investor um, because if something's moving fast but continues to trade, you can do something. And so, okay, we understand this at a conceptual level, but then Steve offered 9-11 as an example of this difference between large tradable price swings versus gap-like volatility. You know, I was at Lehman, back at Lehman at that time, and um, we actually lost, we were in the World um, Financial Center, so we lost our HQ. On the FX side, on the foreign exchange side, everything carried on trading. You know, so we had wide swings in, in, in currencies but they were, they were trading constantly. You might remember that the, the New York Stock Exchange closed and it closed for you know a number of days. So you had literally no liquidity in your US stock portfolio for days and days and days. Okay, well, when it reopened, it reopened at a very different level. There's nothing you can do about that unless you'd already put a static hedge in place beforehand. Um, so if you if you'd had if you'd made uh, if you if you were prepared for in so-called volatility, um, you, and you had a hedge already on, you were okay, or you know you could limit your damage. If you're expecting to dynamically react in a fast-moving market, you had no chance to do it. And I think that every investor, when they're thinking about uh, why they might use, why they might look at volatility uh, as part of their portfolio needs to distinguish between this idea between a dynamic edge, which is possibly responding to things within a market. For example, a classic one, and one that's a very good idea, you know, is a stop loss. 
Um, that's a that's a dynamic hedging strategy to protect your capital. But you can't act, affect a stop loss if the market's shut or just gaps through an enormous movement. A, a static hedge means you've already got something in place, and that's normally an option um, that relates you know, to, to your portfolio. So for what volatility means to, to me is it's either um, a hedging strategy or it's something that's connected to uh, and is, uh, you know, the the inverse of liquidity. Well, Grant, I was in sixth grade when uh, 9-11 happened. In oh, we're, st- we're still with the age stuff today, are we? Is that, is <laughs> no. that where this is going? Okay. No, it's not that. But volatility and market gaps weren't even close to known concepts for me. I think I was, at that point I was thinking about, you know, which girl I had a crush on and in which class. But my, my first recollection of, of volatility at least was in, in 2008 and 2009. Yeah, I was I was in New York at, uh, on nine eleven, working there. So to me, obviously, it was it was a very big deal, and it, and, it, and it, it, it I think your perspective, if you were in that city on that day, is probably different uh, to looking at it from the outside. But going back to two thousand eight, two thousand nine, you know, Steve's fund, Artradis, at the time was at the very epicenter of that, and was one of the very few that actually came out doing very very well on the other side because of the way he went into it. The two big positions that we had um, in the market going into 2008 was we had a very large position that was just long volatility. So we were long um, a whole range of uh, ways of that. We were long puts, uh, out of the money puts especially. Um, we were long things called variant swaps, uh, which is a very pure pure way to play volatility. We were long things called volatility swaps, uh, which is a, which is the, the OTC equivalent of the VIX. Um, and we were lo- we were long um, underlying billions and billions of dollars of um, credit default swaps, mostly on banks. And the reason why mostly on banks because one they were the epicenter of this level, this excessive level of de- leverage, you know. And secondly, they were our counterparties on all of these other instruments we had. So, so you know, everyone imagines that being long volatility, which we were, you know, in this three going to five billion dollar fund you know we were we were having the time of our lives it, it was actually the opposite i mean we, we were we were terrified every day um like everyone else was uh the difference was what we were terrified of is that we'd never be able to collect the money that the banks owed us for getting the bet right um and i think that's you know that's another important aspect of um of volatility trading is you have to always remember who your counterparty is, because if you're betting on something highly unexpected happening, um, you can be sure that your counterparty is going to be very surprised if he has to pay out. So you've got to make sure that he's solvent. Yeah, this is uh, there's another lesson here that Steve actually didn't go into, but um, you know, Steve had some very very smart investors, and uh, you know, Steve loves to sit and talk with people and, and get their input and talk about markets and understand different points of view and, and Steve said to me many times you're having smart investors uh, having access to smart people is a really useful thing to have at your disposal and, and you know the, the bank CDS there that Steve talks about was an idea that came out of a conversation he had with one of his very very smart investors and so you know when we when we do these podcasts and we and we put the real vision interviews together you know it, it, it's it's so important to expose yourself to people that think in creative, intelligent ways about financial markets because you just never know where the kernel of an idea is going to come from that that could make or save you an awful lot of money. Right, absolutely. And and just hearing that, and as he was telling me that story, Grant, I was just thinking, 
forget the OTC derivatives, you know, counterparty risk. Like, what about your average discount brokerage? I mean, are, are you sure you own your assets? Uh, what if you're levered? I mean, is there any guarantee that you actually well, no, have owned it? Look, we had this whole rehypothecation stuff going on through 2008 for exactly that reason. People didn't know who owned the assets. People didn't know they were levered in ways they didn't know, and they didn't realize that they'd signed um, agreements that allowed the banks and the brokerage houses to lend out their stock. Uh, to who knows who, and, and would they ever get it back in? So, you know, all these things, these lessons that we should have learned from 2008, you know, you could argue that a lot of them perhaps either weren't learned in the first place or have been forgotten already. I mean, in 2008, the the amount of leverage and the margin meant that this snowball starts at a very high height on a very steep slope. Between August 2007 and um December 2008, that 16-month period, we made about over $3 billion for our investors from our fund, which was at the time only $2.5 billion. So essentially what happened was a total and complete change in perception of risk from non-existent to um, ubiquitous and, and, and permanent. And that was caused by the fact that when prices started to fall, you had forced sellers. Um, and this is very, very important to volatility because at the point at which the seller is not in charge, char- he's not making a discretionary choice, he's making a um, compulsory choice or he's not making it at all. You know, his creditor, which might be the credit department of the bank or his counterparty or the exchange is liquidating his collateral. Then you then then that's when you get huge spikes in in volatility because you have mandatory selling, not discretionary selling. Now you know everybody out there that owns an ETF has decided that passive investing is the way to go. Why pay active managers needs to listen to this and listen carefully because the example here is exactly the problem that the ETF market is potentially potentially setting up for. You know, when markets are trending in an upward direction, I've said this so many times. Uh, there is always an offer, always. Now, it could be up 100%, it could be up 20%, but people will make you an offer in a rising market. When markets turn around, it's exactly what Steve's talking about here, happened in, in August 07 into 2008. When markets go the other way, oftentimes, not even sometimes, oftentimes there is no bid. And all these flash crashes we've seen, uh, these aren't fat fingers, these are a rehearsal for what happens when people say, just get me out and... Everyone pours their bids, and there's only one bid left at one, and that's where it's going to trade. And so this is how you end up with this sort of gapping feature of volatility, right? Where where there is no liquidity, and the bid ask spread, as you just described, is completely blown wide open, um, and this cascades until you're at the final bid. And from that point onward, in 2008, the market and volatility landscape completely changed. What happened first was the banks worked out that they were you know, probably significantly and widely insolvent. Um, governments decided that it was necessary for government money to come in and stabilize the system. And that was the first time that it happened. We'd had crises in, before, you know, 1987, the LTCM crisis, but this, essentially the system had sorted itself out. Um, but now we had governments and central banks coming in to deliberately stabilize the system. So we saw two things. One is the number of products that were out there uh, diminished massively, because I think a lot of people just said, I'm never doing that again. And banks were not were significantly uh, encouraged to close these things down. 
um, and you know to recollateralize and to hold much more uh, collateral against their exposure, which meant that you know these, uh, having these sorts of products, you know, it's quite expensive from a collateral point of view. So we saw a, a gargantuan decrease in the amount of volatility being traded between 2009 and 2012, probably about 90%. So literally a tenth of what was going on before that. The the critical thing, and it, it really you know made a big impact in what we did, is that governments and central banks are now intrinsically and you know, probably permanently uh, involved in capital markets. And the, that is a t- complete and profound change in the structure of capital markets. And it also probably means a complete and permanent change in the nature of volatility and tail risk. So in other words, the markets are getting the kid glove treatment from global central banks. But just like spoiling your children, if you have them, this comes at a cost. Now, that's worked really well uh, for the last five, six years, seven, seven, eight years even. But it comes at a cost. And I think that the moral hazard component there is huge. And I think that, as you rightly observe, we've seen a growing tendency for, for products that are short volatility and investors to be short volatility to, to creep back in under a perception that the downside to be in short volatility, in other words, the upside to volatility is capped as long as governments stay involved. Um, that might be true, but I think it's a horribly dangerous thing to do, particularly with um, volatility at these extraordinarily low levels. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm slightly horrified um, about it. I'm not an active participant in this, you know, uh, anymore. I mean, you know, we are constantly asked, you know, why don't we get back involved? And the reason we don't get back involved is because the game is rigged. Ah, yes, the R word. You know, it's funny when you look at the reaction that uh, Michael Lewis got when he talked and used that word uh, in that famous interview around Flash Boys. Um, it's, it's a very powerful word. And, you know, Steve doesn't shy away from using it. And I think this is important to understand because, when you talk about rigging markets, everybody assumes that it's a bunch of you know bankers in a dark room or in a bar somewhere quietly colluding to manipulate asset prices. No, that's Jekyll Island. <laughs> yeah, right. But you know, as we've seen recently from the 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 recent uh, escalation of the LIBOR scandal, where the Bank of England are implicated in in instructing Barclays to try and manipulate the uh, LIBOR rate, quote unquote, for the greater good. You know, what you have here with central banks uh, is another form of rigging. You know, they're actively looking to change the way market participants behave. And the way they're doing that is to put out the uh, notion that they are there to step in. And when things do get volatile, when volatility does get elevated, they will come in, Draghi's famous whatever-it-takes speech being uh, the, the classic example, and they will calm things down. And and that is a rigging of the markets. And so when you rig it like that, you create, I think Steve mentioned, the moral hazard where it's simply a lack of, lack of consequences for your actions. And what this does is it, it creates a sort of reflexive feedback loop effect where, you, again, the popularity of these short volatility products that we saw emerge in the mid-2000s, they're, they're coming back in and coming back in greater force because there's also this, this reach for yield. But 
I think at, at this point, it's also important to maybe note or specify some of the other reasons that might be driving volatility to these low levels. I mean, for example, we haven't yet had a turn in the, in the business cycle. Uh, you know, put option writing by institutions and funds, as I, as I mentioned, they're starved for yield. So you're going to have this, this bid. But again, uh, and, but again, I mean, that's the prime example, right? Why are they doing that? Because they, they, they feel comfortable writing puts because if they're wrong, yeah, they may be wrong for a couple of days, right. but things will come back again and they'll be able to trade their way out of it and it won't be too painful for them. Yeah. And, and also, you know, those same pensions and those same funds, are, they're bidding up corporate bonds and, and those bond proceeds go towards bidding up stocks, which, again, that's another underlying bid in the stock market and, and uh, is a form of, of suppressing volatility. Absolutely. I mean, look, all this was enough to essentially make Steve decide he doesn't want to play the volatility game anymore. You know, when you, when you, when you, when you know something that well and yet you're not allowed to use that knowledge because uh, of outside forces, why bother doing it anymore? And, and he's also explicitly aware of these misconceptions that remain. And, and unfortunately, these misconceptions can turn into misguided and potentially costly mistakes for the average investor. I think volatility generally is, is, is poorly understood, but I think where that is best uh, exemplified is in the popularity of VIX products. Um, you, you know, a lot of people are trading VIX products. We even now have ETFs on the VIX, and we have inverse VIX uh, ETFs, you know, which are being sold to investors. I think that there is an assumption that this is a great hedge against markets falling, uh, come what may. And, you know, the VIX is a really complicated um, and, you know, highly opaque product. It's not bad, and we have traded it, but, you know, we were professional volatility uh, investors. Um, I think that in in many, many cases, going back to old-fashioned put options would be a much better hedge for investors who are long securities than uh, trading in VIX products. Yeah, and Steve's point that it's better to use puts to hedge your teller risk, uh, you know, I think is a, is a very valid one. But but unfortunately, and I hate to go back to this again, but in this in the age of passive investing and and you know buying an ETF to express an investment idea, people have also gotten lazy in terms of looking at hedging, uh, and so they assume that the VIX is a is a one stop shop and it will give you the protection you need, and that's just not the case. It's not the case, and. If they actually dug up the PDF for some of the prospectuses of, of these products, it's uh, it's pretty thick. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we make James sit on them so he can see over the desk when we record these podcasts. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, Grant, Steve is out of the volatility game and he's turned his attention. I mean, you know this better than anybody else. He's turned his attention and capital towards real assets like German real estate, New Zealand avocado farms. Uh, but- yeah, but, but, you know, it's actually, this is a, a, an important point, Aaron, because he's done that. As a hedge, right? These are investments, right. but they're also hedges. And in many ways, they're a lot more complex than VIX products, but these are real assets that you can use to hedge other parts of your portfolio. No, absolutely. And we, we, we kept talking for, I think, another 20, 25 minutes um, after this. And unfortunately, we don't have enough time to get into how he's actually turned his real assets into, uh, in, into a portfolio that has a similar risk-reward profile to an option, which I think is incredible. But Grant, next next up, I wanted to get some perspective from someone who is currently trading volatility. And so I spoke with Chris Cole, who's the managing partner at Artemis Capital Management in Austin, Texas. And I asked him what volatility meant to him. And he took me down a road I didn't expect. 
In a narrow view of what it means in a market perspective, it can either mean the statistically realized volatility of an asset price, or it can mean what the market expects the volatility of that asset price to be at some point in the future. Uh, so that's that's the narrow definition of what it means in markets. I think what it means in the construct of life is something very different. Uh, I see volatility as an instrument of truth, and in that sense, it's it's not fear, it's it's not the VIX index, it's not a statistic or something that can be derived by an abstract formula. That volatility regardless of how it's measured, reflects the difference between the world as we imagine it to be and the world that actually exists. So if we do not search for the truth relentlessly, the truth will find us through volatility. And I believe that happens in markets, and I believe that happens in life. So great. You can just imagine me sitting here, just having my mind blown in the first minute of our conversation. You're having your mind on that. If you actually think about what Chris has said there, it's exactly what we were talking about, the dangers of suppression of volatility, because he's right. It's a natural force. We live in a volatile world. And when Chris says that he believes that volatility is the difference between perception and reality, the reality is the world is volatile. The perception that is being created by the central banks, as we've spoken with Steve about, is misplaced. And if Chris is right, and I truly believe he is, that volatility will find us. And so, Grant, given that start, I was not at all surprised by what was dropped on me next. You know, risk cannot be destroyed. It can only be transmuted in form, redistributed in form, or shifted through time. So, from a market's perspective, one of the things that uh, I think really frustrates me is when I hear people say that, that global central banks have destroyed risk and removed risk from the system. And people will say this when central bank balance sheets are at their largest levels in history, and that global debt is at the largest levels in history. So we haven't destroyed risk. All that we've done is we've taken asset returns from the future and pulled them to the present. And we've taken risk from the present, and we've pushed it into the future. It has not been destroyed. So, Greg, you know, you, you talked about Ben Bernanke in, in your, your short. At some point, don't you think the people who are pulling these levers and are bringing the returns forward and pushing the risk out, don't you think they understand what they're doing? You know, look, I go backwards and forwards with this a lot, Aaron. I, I, and the answer is I don't know um, because my, my gut tells me that they do, but they figure if we can push the risk far enough back and pull enough of the demand far enough forward will create a self-fulfilling dynamic that will help markets get better and improving up and, and that way the risk won't be a problem. But I think Chris is absolutely right. You, you can pull the assets forward, you can pull the returns forward, that, that's actually easy to do, but it's impossible to destroy the risks. They don't just go away. And this is this is an incredibly important thing for people to understand. You know, I, I think one of the questions people struggle with is, you know, why did a Fed, for example, care so much about the stock market? Why do they step in when we see stock market volatility? And I think it, it's important to really get your head around the fact that although a very small percentage of people actually invest in the stock market, you know, some of them have in their company pension plans, whatever, but in terms of active investors, it's a very small percentage of people. So why should they care that you know 
16% of people are going to lose money in the stock market uh, route. But if you think about what we're talking here, volatility, you're thinking about the the mental stress it puts people under. When the man in the street wakes up to a headline in the newspaper that says stock market crash, he's preconditioned to panic because stock market crashes only happen when things are really bad because all those smart guys working on Wall Street, if they're panicking, you know I should panic. And so the man in the street, when there's a stock market crash, uh, he doesn't sell his stock portfolio because he doesn't have one, but he stops spending. He doesn't go out in the real economy and he reigns in and he, and he withdraws. And that has a, a hugely negative effect on the economy. So I think it's in the in the central bank's best interests, and they realise this, to foster this stability, foster this uh, this fake um, idea that, that the risks are dissipated. And this is especially true when you have an over-financialization of the economy, because then there are even greater linkages between the financial volatility and economic volatility. Absolutely. And, and you know, this avoidance uh, of the acknowledgement of risk uh, and, and the ability to, or this, the inability to destroy it creates uh, an environment which we're all too familiar with by now. Calculated risk-taking is either discouraged or it's completely distorted. The problem with this is when you're suppressing volatility in in markets and in life, um, that can create a regime of moral hazard where all of a sudden everyone now believes that there will be this inherent central bank put. Everyone is buying in advance of the central bank put. And we begin to set up an inherent instability in the system. This is this is kind of the Minsky idea that stability is what leads to instability. So stability leading to instability is not some kind of riddle. I mean, there are some real-world examples of this. And it was incredible because at this point, Chris drew upon uh, an analogy from nature to help explain what, um, what he meant. And you look no further than nature for examples of this. You know, I love to go skiing, and a friend of mine are out there. Um, we went skiing in Chile, um, and they are dynamiting the mountain. Why are they dynamiting the mountain? They're going out, and they're specifically looking to see where there's a buildup of snow, where there's a potential avalanche. And instead of letting those, uh, instead of letting the, that buildup and that tranquility build up, they will go out and purposefully create controlled avalanches. Same thing with forest fire suppression. If you talk to marriage therapists, the couples that are fighting are the ones that have the highest potential of having their marriage saved. It's the marriages where no one is fighting and there's perceived tranquility that are a lost cause because they aren't bringing their problems to the forefront. It's passive aggressive, uh, passive aggressiveness. So this is what we see in markets. They've continually suppressed volatility. And as a result, the market has self-organized into a moral hazard that creates a self-reflexivity to reinforce that lower and lower volatility. But the buildup of leverage and the buildup of moral hazard is such a point where when it breaks, it will be, it will be catastrophic. Chris's ability to communicate these ideas is astounding. And, and for, for anyone out there listening that's a Real Vision subscriber who hasn't seen the interview with Dave Dredge, who, again, is, is just another incredibly intelligent proponent uh, 
and user of volatility. You should watch that because he talks about this a lot. This forest fire analogy is, is such a crucial one to understand. But the big thing here is, and you heard Chris say it in both examples, control. Controlled detonation of, of an avalanche. Controlled forest fire. Having control of those negative forces is the only way you can allow yourself to let them play out. Now, of course, in markets, it's very difficult to control it. There's no controlled decline in the stock market. They can't ease the market down 1% every day right. until they get it to a level. Um, and this is, this is really important for people to understand. You, you don't have that control. Exactly. And so if, if volatility is in nature and it's everywhere around us, why don't we understand it? I think there's a lot of misconceptions about vol. Um, I think the number one is that I, I actually think volatility, some people will say, is volatility an asset class? And there's this weird debate about whether vol is an asset class. And I, I throw down the gauntlet and say volatility is the only asset class. That if you look at a lot of different investments, and actually if you look at this in terms of a life dynamic, a lot of behaviors can be can be subcategorized into long volatility or short volatility investments or behaviors. In either scenario, you can actually break down and see different behavior patterns, different behaviors that uh, have the same effect in life. So uh, there's plenty of examples where um, long, like exercise, is a long volatility type of type of play, where um, you exert energy up front. Um, public speak, you exert energy up front for a long-term gain. Um, public speaking, you know, if you end up going out, you put yourself out there. That's very painful and difficult to do. But uh, the more you do it, um, eventually you meet someone that potentially can change your life or change your career. Um, other short, short volatility type of strategies might be um, excessive eating or, or drinking. It feels good in the short run but in the long run can lead to catastrophic drawdowns that can hurt your prospects. Grant Hero, is I, I totally wasn't expecting to get a life lesson, but yet it's so true. You know, you look at, even it prompted me, hearing all of this prompted me to sort of do a, a self-inventory or an evaluation of where's my convexity? Where's, you know, where am I long volatility in my own life? Where am I short volatility? You know, Chris said to me um, when, when we did the interview back in, in the tail end of last year, you know, he said, look, that we're all volatility traders. The only difference is some of us realize it and some of us don't. And that really, really struck home with me. And I think he's absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, it's a, it's, a it's a great prism for viewing life. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, right now we're talking about in theory. And in my opinion, theory is useless without practice. But in this case, it begins and ends with a wristwatch called a ticker that Chris wears. I'll wear this watch. It's called a ticker. It's the only thing on the market that, that does this. And um, I, I've been looking for other types of watches. So far, this is the only one on the market that does this. It's called a ticker, and it, it counts time backwards to the end of your life. So you're, you're given a certain number of seconds, and you just watch those seconds tick away based on your life expectancy. And some people would find this very, very morbid. I actually find it incredibly life-affirming. Because it's saying that if you're going to do something, time is valuable. It's more valuable than money. Well, if you think about, if you think about our lives, we are like an option. And the, in that concept, 
we have a limited expiration. There's an expiration date. I don't quite know when it is, but there's an expiration date on my life. And every single day, we get closer to that expiration date. Um, in that sense, we are short time, short time in our lives. So the concept is to find as much nonlinearity as possible in your life to have to set your goals and to achieve the most you can in, in a nonlinear fashion and live the richest, most full life you can. Uh, all the time knowing that that you're you're a an option that is going to expire. And so our our biggest commodity is or most important commodity is time. You know, I, I was I said this in Volatility Allegory of the Prisoner's Dilemma. Warren Buffett's worth you know, 66 billion, I think. And but he's he also in his 80s. And I asked this of people, how many people would switch places with Warren Buffett? And almost no one, no one does. No one, no one would no no 25-year-old would switch places with Warren Buffett, even to achieve his wealth. What does that say about the way we value time? Time is our most valuable asset. We are we are short time, and that's our largest portion of being short convexity. Time and health. And just like an option, our rate of decay increases nonlinearly as we get closer and closer to the end of our life. And that's that you need to, just like an option, expire in the money. You need to find as much convexity, as much life as possible to expire as far in the money um, instead of just wasting away. Wow. You know, it, it's, it's always such a thrill when you find people like Steve and Chris that have this ability to, to communicate complex ideas in real-world ways that... that connect with people and you know i think what you just heard chris say there for two and a half three minutes is something you know people should take away and play again and again and again because he's absolutely right and it's so profound and and what i love about this though grant is that not only are we talking about markets but it's unifying a life view and so the the simplicity of it the uh how do you say the uh, the elegance of of the of the view is it's amazing but you know, this this comes back again to this idea of nature, right? This idea of volatility, volatility being a natural phenomenon. And you know, when we talk about the forces of nature, they are powerful, and they are way, way uh, more powerful than man will ever be. And so, people need to bear that in mind as we talk about volatility and we talk about risk as natural forces. That you can do your best to mitigate them. Uh, but you better have a plan because when these things happen, they have a habit of causing chaos. Yeah, Grant, that was, I had a lot of fun writing that story and it was great experience speaking with Chris and with Steve, because these are two people who have tremendous experience and knowledge when it comes to volatility. And, uh, you know, I'm still continuing my education and, and not in terms of thinking about volatility, but also implementing it into my framework for understanding markets and for trading markets. Yeah, this is volatility is a complicated subject, but but I love the fact that these two guys in different ways are able to to make it understandable and accessible. And you know, that's the thing about finance and and what we're trying to do here with with this podcast is try and make people understand that, you know, while there's a lot of jargon uh, and it's it's complex stuff, it doesn't have to be. You can break it down in in ways that 
may not mean you have a complete understanding of it, but you have enough understanding to, to realize what it means to you. And so you know, anytime we get a chance to, to chat with guys like Chris and Steve, we jump at it. We do. Well, coming up next is our Things I Got Wrong segment, where we speak with a market expert about an investing mistake they made, and then we get them to share a nugget of wisdom that they derive from that experience. And Grant, this week we speak with Chris Martinson, who you're familiar with. You actually recently spoke with him for Real Vision TV. Yeah, you know, Chris is a great guy. He's, he's one of those fascinating polymaths. He's just smart about a lot of things. Oh, polymath, great word. It's so true. Yeah, and he, and he does, but he has, it's, it's funny. And I asked him this question in the interview. He has you know, his, his views, which are built on tremendous education and understanding, are seen as outside the mainstream, which I find very interesting. You know, this, this, this idea that people don't like to entertain ideas that don't fit in a very defined box. And Chris is, is one of the great out-of-the-box thinkers and, and a, a tremendous communicator. And that's something that runs through this thread of this, of this piece we're doing this week is the ability of these guys to, to communicate complex ideas in a very accessible way. Absolutely. And, and I kind of got out of the box a little bit with this segment because not only did I ask him for um, a mistake he made on the trading and or market side, but also ask him, you know, how uh, a mistake he made in, in communicating and how that evolved. So uh, check out this interview I had with Chris. Well, joining us this week is Chris Martinson, who's the founder of peakprosperity.com and the author of the book Prosper, How to Prepare for the Future and Create a World Worth Inheriting. It's an excellent book. Um, Chris, you're, you're so many things. You're a PhD scientist, uh, also the, the creator of the, of the Crash Course on YouTube. There's so many things that you've done, but uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here with you and all your listeners today. So Chris, you have your own podcast and, and you, you produce a lot of content, but for the audience members who are not familiar with you and your work, can you just give us the background and, and the story of, of who you are and what you do? Sure, uh, I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, this all begins with my background as a scientist, and you mentioned that earlier on, but I, I'm, a, I'm a scientist by training, meaning I love data and forming theories, hypotheses, and, and I like to think of myself as somebody who who can uh, change his views when the data changes and all of that. Um, not always as easily done as, as that, but so I love data. And I, I did that for a while as a scientist. And then I took a turn in life and got an MBA and went and did corporate finance for a while. So again, uh, data in numbers and finance and things like that all make sense to me. Uh, but deep down, what I really am is I'm a concerned father, a concerned citizen, somebody who believes that uh, the direction we're heading in right now is is not a good one. So I, I've, I've really, I'm a very mission-driven person right now who, who cares a lot about uh, giving people access to the information that could really help them make decisions now and, and for the future. And so that mission really you know resonates with us here at Real Vision, and it's a big part of this segment because what we try to, we speak with market experts and analysts about mistakes they made in the past and then try and get them to share it with our listeners so that they don't make those same mistakes. So my first question is for you is, can you tell us about a time where you made an investing mistake? Sure, be happy to. Um, you know, I was, uh, what happened for me was, was I had basically exited from my, my uh, corporate job, vice president of a company in 2005. And for the next couple of years, I was very successfully day trading. And um, I had seen the housing bubble coming along and, and uh, uh, did a very good job uh, shorting housing uh, 
stocks and mostly home builders and mortgage insurers. Those were my two favorite targets. And, and I had uh, specific companies that I thought were especially wrong and all that. That went really well. So I started thinking myself was, was something of a genius. Um, and I was uh, starting to get involved as well in futures trading. And I was really specializing in gold and uh, lesser extent silver um, and a little bit in oil. But gold was really the market I was most most familiar with. And I had a great system worked out where uh, I wouldn't dare trade gold futures without having all of the tickers up uh, for various gold shares, um, not the indexes because because they would they responded too slowly. So what I would notice was that before gold was about to get hit um, or go up in price, you could usually spot that in the in the underlying um, gold mining shares. I don't know why, you know, I'm not close enough to understand it, but I assume somebody out there is is following the same strategy but larger. <clears throat> So I was really, I had a system that was really working, worked really well through 2007. It started working less well in 2008. And by the time I finally decided uh, I couldn't do this anymore, I'd, I'd had some real losses um, trying to trade gold futures. Something had fundamentally changed in that market. And it took me too long to recognize that. Um, I would say probably six months too long. I had, so, you know, for me, trading gold futures was a full contact sport. And uh, I definitely got body slammed a number of times. And, uh, and now I understand looking back what had happened and, and what had, what had shifted. But at the time it, it really took me too long to figure out this one thing, which is that the game had changed. Yeah. It, um, I imagine for, for people who were trading gold at the time, especially going to 2008, 2009, you know, if you see the bubble and you're like, okay, if it's going to break, then gold is something you want to be in, but gold actually fell what 30% in 2008, 2009. So during that time and coming out of that, what did you what did you take away from that experience? What did you learn? Well, what I learned, it took me um, a number of podcasts with with people like um, um, uh, Joe Saluzzi and other people. Joe Saluzzi wrote uh, Broken Markets, and he talked about the rise of high frequency trading. So what had happened was the market was fundamentally shifting at that point from a human market to a computer driven market. And now we know that the Chicago Mercantile Exchange doesn't have any gold and blue jackets with people waving slips of paper around. It's just blinking lights. So what I didn't understand was that the market structure was changing from people to machines, and the machines were great. So here, like, here's a especially painful moment for me. Um, I had a, a fairly modest amount, but but I had a, a series of gold longs, and uh, with a stop on them. And this is you know just a full you know a limit stop. And I woke up the next morning and gold was exactly at the price where it had gone, where it had closed the day before, but all my, all my, <laughs> my entire position was gone and I had to peel back and look. And there was one tick that came down at one in the morning and came right down and picked all of my, my futures off. And then the gold price went right back up. I had personally been pocket picked. Um, and so there are machines out there that that see a very thin market structure in the middle of the night. The bid ask structure is tiny enough that it was worth it for somebody to go slam the bid stack, um, some algorithm to just hit the bid stack, come all the way down, grab my uh, all of my longs and uh, peel them off and then come back up and take, you know, whatever it was like five or six bucks per per ounce, you know, whatever they they grabbed off of me. So that should have been my moment where I just said, oh, that I got my pocket picked. The game has changed. I hadn't seen that before, but I kept on thinking that was an anomaly. And it wasn't. I've talked to other people afterwards like, no, that happens now. There, there are algos that can calculate very clearly if the market's thin enough. If your position's worth it to them, they'll come and take it from you. And that's where I, you know, I should have realized now I understand. Computers are in. It's a market structure that's different. 
And most importantly, these computers have access to um, the entire book of trade that was different from any level of quoting that I could I had access to. Uh, so, so that was that that was really a you know part of my my painful tuition cost of trading. Yeah, it sounds it sounds very painful, and 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 the proliferation of these algorithms and and computer based trading has only grown right um, since that time. So going forward, I mean, how do you do you look at markets differently now before you you trade, or or do you, do you still trade? I, I no, I don't trade uh, at all at this point because I'm so busy with my work. So my trading is, if I do it, it is it take, it's a full full time job. Um, so I, I do have market positions, but uh, I'm letting other people sort of manage that on a longer term basis. I think that that this, the idea of day trading is is has been ruined as far as I'm concerned. Like you have to, your your finger can't hit the buy or sell button. It, you know, you have to be operating at millisecond precision at, at worst uh, microsecond would be better. I mean, it's just, it's a whole different game out there right now. And so these algorithms are, are, are ruthless. Um, they never sleep. They're lightning fast and they're connected in ways. Now we know based on things that have been revealed that they have access to information that you and I don't have access to. So it's a very tilted market. It's asymmetrical. And so that's supposed to be, then when I say broken markets, I mean that literally, because if a market is a place where prices are set by willing buyers and sellers, you need open information uh, for that to work effectively. And it's very clear these algorithms are tied in at levels and have access to information that is not public, um, or at least not public in the time frame that's relevant. And, and Chris, you know, I want to pivot to something. Um, so I want to ask you another question about something you got wrong. But more relating on the communication side, because you do a great job in the podcast and in the content you put out at Peak Prosperity uh, in explaining complex issues uh, to a wide audience. So I want to ask you, what mistakes have you made or what, mis- what, what lessons have you learned through time about communicating uh, complex issues to, to people? Uh, well, this is probably an area I've had the greatest amount of learning in. And, and the mistake, to, to frame it in that way, uh, was trying to communicate the early stuff I was understanding about how the world was working and, and how it was shifting to my wife. So this is 2001, 2002. Uh, there wasn't nearly the internet of information then that we have today. So, um, you know, I was just digging around in remote corners and, and reading things. And, and I was coming to my wife in a really agitated way. Now, understand this is really, this is a long time ago. We have three very young children at this point. We're living in a five bathroom house, you know, right there on the coast of Connecticut. And I'm leading a corporate life. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to come to my wife with these really kind of urgent concerns I had. So I'm a little worked up and I'm um, trying to get her, you know, why aren't you seeing this the same way? And she just didn't have the time or space or interest to even engage on that. And I kept coming at her and it was really creating a lot of friction uh, between us. And and that continued until I suddenly figured out how to shift my tone and was able to come to her. And she, she you talk to her, she will openly tell you this was the time she was very worried about my sanity, whether our marriage was going to survive, how, how crazy it was, to hoping it was a midlife crisis that would just hopefully end in a sports car instead of this crazy direction. <laughs> and uh, and so what what from her recollection, she says that there was that shift in tone where I came to her one day and, and said, listen, I'm seeing the world in a new way and uh, it would be important for me to see if you see it the same way. So if you could just look through this lens, let me know what you see, because I'd like to be aligned around this. And, and so that was my first understanding, and, and it's grown since then, uh, to, to really know that if you want to communicate challenging material to people, you can't bring emotional content with that. And whether you're um, angry, agitated, upset, depressed, excited, if any one of those tones you're going to bring, 
when you're trying to get somebody to engage in new, possibly troubling material is really a first invitation for them to say, no, resist, right? So the, the key to being influential, whether you're trying to influence somebody to buy a car or to listen to a whole new material, is that you have to come in in a way that, I'm not saying be passionless, but you have to come in in a way that's not requiring them to be in a different emotional state than they are already in. If you do that, you're out of the game right right from the get-go because to engage in new material, to make a purchase, any of those things, those are actually emotional actions. They're not rational. Like we like to think of rational, calculate it all out, right? So, so matching the emotional um, resonance of who you're speaking to is critical. And once you can do that and you're not asking them to climb over this 12-foot tall wall of emotion in order to begin engaging with you. If you can just get that wall out of the way, much better chance of being influential and actually reaching them. Yeah, Chris, that's a, such a great point. And, and, and not only about communicating uh, complex issues, but just communicating in general, right? If you can help people mm-hmm. avoid, uh, especially if you're talking about um, concepts and topics that may throw someone down the Kubler-Ross model or, you know, or the, mm-hmm. the five stages of grief, if you can help people avoid that, the better, because you know, time is of the essence, especially with the things that we're talking about. But time, uh, unfortunately, we're out of time for this segment. Chris, um, can you tell our listeners where they can find your work or get in touch with you? Absolutely. Uh, peakprosperity.com. That's P-E-A-K, like a mountain peak. That's where most of, of the uh, information is contained. Of course, just search my name on the internet, Chris Martinson, M-A-R-T-E-N-S-O-N. You'll find lots of hits. Um, at Chris Martinson is the uh, Twitter handle. You'll find us on Facebook and around. But peakprosperity.com, that's where we have the majority of our work. Most of it is free. We also have a subscription newsletter for people who like to go deeper into these topics. Great, Chris. Thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Well, I think Chris hits the nail on the head there. You know, the, 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 the ability to communicate emotional topics in a calm and dispassionate way is is something that it's very hard to do, but it's it's essential if you want to get people to actually take you seriously and to listen to your ideas, particularly when they're, as I said, outside the mainstream. Uh, and, you know, the other point Chris made about um, machines and algorithmic trading and the shift we've seen to, to passive index-led robo-trading is also one that people need to understand because it hasn't been really challenged in a falling market yet and people need to understand what it could potentially mean when the trend reverses and all these robots and machines and algorithms are chasing a falling trend and and, and exacerbating that as they have on the way up right absolutely and on that first point grant too i remember when i first found out about how money was created and how the system operates i wanted to tell everybody right and and there was this energy and this passion and this enthusiasm and i haven't lost it but I think the, the crucial point that I took out of that conversation with, with uh, Chris on that topic is that you have to approach people where they are and, you know, don't, you know, talk to them about these topics in such a way that it doesn't take them off the rails or where the emotional ask is not that large because, is, as you said, a lot of these topics are already emotionally charged, right? As soon as you try and convert somebody to your way of thinking, the walls go up. If you talk to them about how you see the world, you have a chance of engaging them. And that's all you really can hope for is that engagement. And, and, and that's what is sadly lacking in so many places in the world today is that ability of people to engage each other with different ideas, talk them through, and you know what? Agree to disagree and walk away, but have the conversation. Yeah, and we're going to continue to have these conversations uh, starting with next week's episode. But that brings us to the end of this episode. Just a legal disclaimer before we, we cap it off. Anything you've heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. 
These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors only. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and trade responsibly. Yeah, next week we'll be back with our usual long short segment, uh, as well as things I got wrong. And for our feature segment next week, Grant and Raul will be revisiting a past interview with Alan Boyce, where he talks about uh, the what's happening in agriculture and what, what are some of the major forces and opportunities surrounding that space. Yeah, you know, we, we talk about Chris Martinson as a polymath. You know, Alan Boyce is another just brilliantly smart guy. Don't miss that one. In the meantime, if you've got an interesting question for us uh, about this week's show or anything else, we'd love to hear it. Uh, so send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes and definitely leave us a review that helps us shoot up the rankings. It really does. I have no, still have no idea how that works, but it really does. Uh, apparently, some, somebody wasn't happy with our uh, Adam Sandler comments last week, but uh, I apologize to anyone who was offended on Adam Sandler. Well, behalf. that person can go watch more Adam Sandler movies. Yeah, there you go. Um, if you want to keep up with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, then please do follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And you also find us hanging out at Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for us, Real Vision. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do that very easily by looking at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at Macrodidact. And that's it from us. We will see you back here next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.